Hi, I'm Kyle Caldwell. And I'm Becky O'Connor, and this is On The Money, a weekly look at how to get the best out of your savings and investments. In this episode, we're answering your questions. So firstly, a big thank you for sending them in. We'll aim to do more of these in future episodes, so please do keep them coming on email at otm at ii.co.uk or on Twitter at iiontheMoney. So the first one, Becky, relates to something we touched on in episode three and comes from Roger Fetford. So Roger wrote in to point out that he is a trustee of a corporate scheme that has a large um, defined benefit pension, but also a sizable defined contribution section of the pension. He pointed out that some lifestyle um, pension funds, they target drawdown at retirement, and that our comments seem to assume that all lifestyle strategies target fixed interest at retirement and neglects the possibility that funds could stay invested during drawdown. And he went on to conclude that damning all lifestyle strategies as inappropriate for drawdown is potentially misleading. It's a fair point. Look, so I mean, in in the olden days, um, the defined benefit lifestyling strategies were designed so that people could access an annuity when they retired. But they have moved with the times and people now do go into drawdown, um, although annuities are coming back, funny enough. So yes, sometimes the lifestyling does take into account the possibility that somebody is going to go into drawdown rather than buying an annuity with their pension pot. And what that means in practice is that the um, lifestyling strategy will not de-risk as quickly or as sharply as it might do if if it was assumed that the annuity is going to be bought rather than the customer going into drawdown. So it is it is worth pointing out. But I think, you know, in general, the main point that we were trying to make in the previous one was that it's important that people know whether they're being lifestyled or not and whether that lifestyling is appropriate for their particular plans. They may not be or they might be. And the only way you'll know is if you actually dig into the pension because it does vary from scheme to scheme and whether you're in defined benefit or defined contribution, etc. But very happy to clarify and go into further detail on that. So thank you, Roger, for pointing out that omission. So the second question that we're going to cover, Mark Roach, he got in touch and he essentially asked how many funds should he invest in? He pointed out that in his portfolio, he has 20 funds that he's dripping equally into. So this is a question that I've been asked a lot over the years and I've written articles on. And unfortunately, it's a bit of a trick question. There's no magic number and it'll vary for every investor. So I think first point to make is that the amount you invest has a big bearing on how, how many funds you have. So if you're a big beginner investor, you know, you invest in, say, your first £1,000, then, you know, it makes sense to potentially just invest in one fund. But then when your pot grows and, say, it gets to 20000 50000 100000 then it makes sense to not put all your eggs in one basket and to have um, a number of funds that invest invest differently and invest in different asset classes. But like eating too many sweets or having too, too much cake, that can be bad for your health. Buying too many funds can be bad for your wealth. So what you want to do is you want to avoid buying too many funds that are doing the same thing, because if you do that, then there's the risk that you over-diversify your portfolio and unwittingly replicate the market. Um, so say, for example, you own half a dozen or more UK funds and they all own you know 40 to 60 shares typically, then you could potentially end up owning hundreds of different companies. That makes it harder to beat the stock market because your portfolio ends up looking the same as it. So I think if you want to invest in hundreds of UK shares, it can be done much more cheaply 
and effectively through a passive fund, either an index fund or an exchange trader fund, which is an ETF. And I think just in general, the main thing to bear in mind is take a look at every fund and make sure that it's bringing something unique to the party in terms of how it invests and what it's investing in. Another point, I don't know if you want to touch on this, Becky, is that the more funds you own, the harder it is to keep on top of how they're performing. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, it, you know, besides the the things that you mentioned on cost and um, over diversification, there's, you know, the issue that you might end up duplicating some of the stocks and shares um, if they're held by more than one fund. And it is hard sometimes to control yourself, and you, particularly when you start investing, because it's quite exciting. And, you know, you may have done lots of research and, you know, you may have found a number of fund names that you think sound really good and in your efforts to di- diversify and also get a bit of everything, um, you go a bit crazy. But it, it can be really hard to stay on top of what's happening with each one and to make sensible decisions on whether to buy more or to sell perhaps some of that fund. If you've got so many, I mean, 20 is plenty. And, um, you know, even even if you've got, you know, quite a lot in each of them, it's going to be hard, even if you've got nothing else going on in life, to stay on top of that number of investments in, in depth anyway. You know, you might be able to check in on the performance, but you might not necessarily know what's going on within them if you're trying to spread your attention across 20. So it's like you have to ask, what can you manage personally? And, and what are you prepared to manage personally? What have you got time to think about too? And of course, you invest in active funds, then there's no guarantees that, you know, if you if you buy today, that in 10 years time, the same fund manager will be running the funds. You know, they they could have jumped, jumped ship to join a rival firm and now they're running another fund elsewhere. Um, or they could, or the fund management company may have decided to um, move them on and appoint someone else. So, um, yeah, as you mentioned, Becky, yeah, the more the more you have, the harder it is to keep on top of how they're performing and whether changes uh, need to be made. And I think it's more prudent to invest in a manageable number of different fund types in order to reduce risk while at the same time avoiding diversifying too much. But yeah, unfortunately, there's no real rule of thumb in terms of yes, ten, fifteen, twenty. That's the perfect number of funds. But hopefully, that has given some help to that question. The next question that we're going to move on to is regarding compounding. Jeremy Breton uh, wrote in, he pointed out that he can see how the magic of compounding works for interesting bearing cash accounts and for dividend paying companies whose share prices are not too volatile. However, he's questioning whether compounding works at all for growth style funds or investment trusts that do not pay a dividend. Becky, I'm going to hand this over to you to begin with. It's a really good question. Lots of the information on the internet talks about compounding returns, which leads you to think that it's it's the same basically effect as um, compound interest on a kind of fixed interest investment. And it is a bit different. If you're investing for growth in mutual funds, which are invested in a range of equities, the benefit of compounding is really coming from the fact that those companies are reinvesting the profits. It's not the way interest is paid as such um, that results in compound returns for you, um, but what is happening with your money and what the money managers and the companies are doing with your money that results in a compounding effect. But it's not exactly the same as the way compound interest works, no. And and it does depend on those profits being reinvested. So I hope that clarifies it to some extent. Um, compounding does apply, but just in a different way. Jeremy mentioned that one of the funds he invests in, which is Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon, he made the point that it doesn't pay a dividend and its share price is now back to the same level as it was in the fair quarter of 2017. 
So the magic of compounding has not worked in this case, even over about five years. I think the point here is that obviously compounding refers to the way investment returns themselves generate gains. But obviously, unfortunately, in this case, there hasn't been a gain. So there's no chance to grow that growth. But obviously, if you know if you're fortunate, to, you know, you invest in a growth fund, say ten years ago, say a technology fund, over a ten-year period, it will have done very well, and it will have benefited from compounds. And if you you know didn't dip into the dip into the returns and you left them to invest, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's also worth mentioning is that the whole thing depends on some kind of growth happening. And unfortunately, without the growth, compounding is a very nice theory, but you're not going to benefit from it in practice. In terms of dividend growth. I mean, I think it's a more, it's more, it's not obviously, it's not guaranteed, but it is a more reliable way of benefiting from compounding. And after all, um, dividend growth, it's where the vast majority of the stock market's returns come from. And I ran some numbers before we came on and recorded. If you take the FTSE 100, for example, if you look at a chart from the start of 2000 to today, it looks like it's basically moved sideways and, you know, not really, obviously a lot's gone on, on in that time, but that looks like that on a chart. But when you add dividends into the mix, the reinvestment of those dividends and the compounding has led the FTSE 100 to return 131%. But if you're just looking at the share price returns, the index is up just under 4%. It does go to show that you need to consider the type of growth that you're getting on your investments and look at what's being quoted when you look at those graphs, doesn't it? Um, because you might be interpreting things completely incorrectly if you're not looking at something that takes into account both dividend and growth. And um, Just a final thought from me is there's something called the Rule of 72, which is a way of estimating how many years it'll take to double your money at a specified rate of return. So what you do is you divide 72 by the yearly income rate. So say a fund yielding 4%, it would take 18 years in theory for that income to double. But of course, that 4% yield, it's, it's not guaranteed. But hopefully that's a helpful illustration of the magic of compounding. That's absolutely brilliant. And I've never heard that before. And I'm now going to try and apply it to all my investments. <laughs> <laughs> We're now going to move on to bonds. We had a question from Jeff Barrett. He basically asked, are bonds now the best place to invest, given all that's gone on in bond markets this year and um, interest rates have been have been rising? So firstly, take a step back. Obviously, bonds have been in the news a lot over the past month due to the now infamous mini budget because the bond market um, took a lot of fright due to uh, unfunded tax cuts and the un- unfunded spending pledges that were made by the former Prime Minister, Prime Minister Liz Truss. The bond market was really scared because it undermined the financial credibility of the UK government and that really spooked the bond market and caused the UK government bond prices to fall notably. And then as we talked about on a previous podcast um, episode, this then nearly caused a liquidity crisis for defined benefit pension funds. But let's let's not go into that again. So it's been, a, it's been a dismal year for bonds overall anyway, even before all that. And that's due to inflation being really high and interest rates um, going up. The average global bond fund, it's down just over 8% over the past year. Um, and some other bond funds have done much worse than that. The average sterling corporate bond fund is down 18%. But the silver lining from now onwards is that investors can now pick up the highest level of income on offer in a long time. So bond prices and bond yields, they have an inverse relationship. So falling prices mean that yields have been rising and this offers investors higher income today. And bond yields are at the highest levels seen since about a decade ago. And for the first time in a very long time, Bonds have similar yields to equities and there's finally an alternative to equities. But looking forwards, the, the outlook for the bond market is heavily reliant on inflation, economic growth, and interest rates. And while those three elements are impossible to predict with any certainty, 
It looks like in the short term that inflation is going to remain much higher than people have been used to. Interest rates are going to keep on rising until inflation is under control. And the UK is probably already in a recession. But the bond market, it's reflecting all that. That's what it expects to happen. So um, those silver linings that I talked about do indicate that um, in terms of the income being generated by bonds and by bond funds, that it's a much more interesting time to be looking at them. Bonds are finally interesting. Um, I, I mean, we always point out at the end of this podcast that there is more information on the Interactive Investor website and we will do so again. But uh, it does feel like the right time to just say if, if any of this isn't making sense because it's too um, it, too complicated uh, or you know news to you, then do have a look at the Knowledge Centre on the II website because... It's a great place to go properly back to basics and fill all those knowledge gaps, which we all do have. And maybe I should just add just as a sort of further explanation, hopefully this will do the job. So the reason why bond funds are now more attractive is because for managers, they're able to buy bonds that are paying a higher level of income. And given that they are able to do that, that should hopefully over time boost the overall total returns as more income is being generated by the underlying investments that the fund managers are investing in. Alan Lloyd got in touch to ask about energy shares. Now, seeing as this is out of our main areas of expertise, Becky, we've parachuted in Interactive Investors Head of Markets, Richard Hunter, to field this one. So, Richard, the uh, gentleman who got in touch, he wanted to, to know which sort of energy shares he should be looking at at the moment. So obviously, it's been a strong year for that sector. Um, I don't know whether there's going to be more to come in 2023. What's your outlook for that sector? Yeah, sure. It has indeed been a, a very strong sector this year. Obviously, the um, oil price itself uh, is up around 25% in the year to date, exacerbated by the situation uh, between Russia and the Ukraine, um, but also, of course, on fears of um, a weakening of demand um, from China, which has seen the price fluctuate during those nine months uh, to 10 months. Although, as I say, it's uh, on balance, it's still fairly high. In terms of this very interesting question, uh, what I'm sort of skewing away from is the higher risk exploration companies for, for a number of reasons, not least of which, of course, is that oil is a finite resource uh, and it's becoming increasingly difficult to find. So in terms of context, um, I'll be probably talking around um, the, the oil majors in the FTSE 100, BP and Shell. But I, I think by way of background, whatever the whys and wherefores of the ESG considerations, we do remain reliant uh, on fossil fuels. And obviously, this is going to be the same uh, for for some considerable time and perhaps even decades. Um, in the meantime, the oil majors are investing billions of dollars in renewable energies, which for the large part currently remain either unproven and or unviable. The switch is on the way and target dates for carbon neutrality, for example, should keep the pressure on. But investors should appreciate that such a transition is not going to happen overnight. In the meantime, the strength of the oil majors has been shown again this year in what has been one of the best performing sectors against an extremely challenging backdrop. That's, de that's despite um, the fact that uh, billions of dollars have had to be taken um, and set aside because of the withdrawal from Russia. But nonetheless, if you look at the share prices, BP is up 50% in the year to date and Shell is up by 53%. And of course, underpinning that extraordinary cash generation, these are companies which had previously 
very much um, whittled themselves down to the bone as far as possible, mainly by divesting of non-core assets. What it's what it means is that with this higher oil price and them having break-even levels of somewhere between forty and sixty dollars per barrel, the oil price is rather near a hundred at the moment. So clearly, that cash generation has not only resulted in several buybacks this year, uh, but also if you look at the dividend yields, they, they remain. Um, attractive given the current interest rate backdrop with BP yielding around 4.1% and Shell uh, 3.5%. So they remain worthy on a practical basis of consideration and indeed either one or both would normally uh, form part of what you might call a traditional portfolio. I think in terms of funds, Carl, you may, may have a view on some which may be worthy of consideration. Well, as you mentioned, Richard, given that um, Shell and BP are two of the biggest uh, weightings in the FTSE 100, then it may just be, you know, one idea would be to, you know, buy a passive fund that tracks the up and down movements of the FTSE 100 index, given that it's already got a sizable amount of exposure in energy stocks. In terms of funds, there's a couple of active funds. One is Schroeder ISF Global Energy. Another is TB Guinness Global Energy. And then in terms of um, exchange traded funds, ETFs, the simplest way to gain exposure to oil is to back an exchange-traded commodity that tracks the oil price. Um, and a couple of options include Wisdom Tree Brent Crude Oil and Wisdom Tree WTI Crude Oil. And there's also some ETFs that track a basket of global energy stocks. Uh, one of those is Lixor MSCI World Energy. But I think it's important to caveat with these funds, these energy funds, they're very specialist and the, the rewards and risks for getting it right or wrong are great. Uh, in terms of when you buy, you could quickly find yourself, you know, if you buy at a good time, you could be quickly up 10% in a matter of weeks, but then it can also go the other way. So um, I think it's really important to not simply buy and hold specialist funds and be prepared to quit a losing position. Because if you buy at a bad time, it can be an uphill struggle to get back to even. Just to make that point, the Schroeder ISF Global Energy Fund, for example, it's up 50% over one year and it's up 68% over three years. But over five years, it's up 21%, which is notably lower than those two shorter term time periods. And our final listener question, which I'll also rope you in to answer, Richard, is related to currency. It's been a strong year for the US dollar against lots of currencies, but particularly against the UK pound. T Billington wrote in and asked, will the Bank of England sit back while sterling careers down towards parity with the US dollar? Has such a thing ever happened before? And what would this mean for UK oil imports? Yes, uh, another good question. Um, and obviously it has been particularly volatile uh, as far as sterling is concerned, given the uh, announcement of the mini budget or fiscal event, which really did put the cat amongst the pigeons. Um, in fact, the current rate of sterling, there's been some stabilisation. The current rate of sterling against the dollar is about 114. Uh, the recent interest rate rise to 3% clearly helped some of that stabilisation, uh, plus the fact that the government is now thinking about how it's going to plug its budgetary gaps. But just to put that into perspective, the level of 114, we did actually briefly touch a low uh, of $1.03 after that fiscal event announcement, which was uh, a bit close for comfort in terms of parity, which as far as I'm aware, has never happened before. But again, in terms of context, if you look at the opening level in 2022, the rate was about 135. So stable or not, uh, it's clearly uh, fair to say 
that um, sterling is considerably down against the dollar in 2022. I think the most important thing to remember is that the currency market, unlike the equity market, is a zero-sum game. If something goes up, something else has got to go down. And what we've seen this year, of course, um, which has been totally punctuated by large periods of volatility on the back of an aggressive Federal Reserve interest rate hiking policy, uh, that policy, of course, aimed to tame inflation, but has also raised concerns of a follow-through recession. So investors have actually been scrambling to what is seen as the ultimate haven, namely the US dollar. So that's obviously had an impact on several major developed currencies, but the own, our own uh, weakening economic outlook in the UK is something that has played against that. And I think it's also worth mentioning that against the weakening pound, imports generally become more expensive. And some of, some of that um, extra expense is going to be passed on to consumers in terms of higher prices, of course, meaning that the weak pound is therefore inflationary of itself. And of course, there are other effects such as more expensive holidays, potentially higher energy costs, as the listener had asked, all, for example, being priced uh, in US dollars. But uh, meanwhile, higher in inflation could lead to more aggressive rate hikes, which, of course, is going to put pressure on borrowers as well. But conversely, exports are cheaper to foreign buyers and therefore more attractive. Uh, and as we mentioned in the previous answer, FTSE 100 earnings, uh, it's estimated that something like 70% of earnings come from overseas. And therefore, these earnings are more valuable on repatriation. And it's actually one of the reasons why the FTSE 100 has held up relatively well compared to many of its global peers uh, in the year to date. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Richard. And thank you for listening to this episode of On The Money. If you enjoyed it, please follow the show in your podcast app and tell a friend about it. If you get a chance, we'd be grateful if you could leave us a review or a rating in your podcast app. You can join the conversation, ask questions and tell us what you want to talk about via Twitter at IIOnTheMoney and email at otm at ii.co.uk. In the meantime, you can find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interactive Investor website at ii.co.uk. See you next week.